Thanks for listening today to In 16 Years. I'm Amy, and this is a podcast where I talk about what I've learned in 16 years of living with stage 4 endo, severe IBS, fibromyalgia, and interstitial cystitis. My name is Brittany, and I live with celiac disease, anxiety, and my own hormonal fun. We hope this show will inspire you, empower you, and help you feel supported on your own health journey. Brittany and I are not doctors, dietitians, mental health professionals, experts on endometriosis, or any kind of qualified medical professional. So that means that none of the information we share on this podcast is medical or mental health advice. If you get inspired by something we say, always consult your qualified medical professional first before making any changes. Hey everyone, before we start this episode, I just want to point out that I pronounced the word estradiol incorrectly in some places in this episode. Estradiol is the most potent form of estrogen in the body, and we will talk about it in this episode. However, in some places I said estradiol, so I just want to clear up that when I say estradiol, I'm really talking about estradiol. So I'm really sorry if that's confusing. All right. On to the show. Today, we're going to talk about the potential long term side effects of Lupron. This is our final episode. Are you serious? Yes, final? Brittany, finally. Oh, it's a miracle. <laughs> this is our final episode in our series that was supposed to be three episodes and became like there's just so much five. information. <laughs> the never ending Lupron and Alyssa series. And this is the final one. And it is about potential risks that you may have when taking Lupron. And we wanted to air this separately from the episode that we did on side effects for Orlissa and Lupron because we feel this is a very serious topic that is not talked about enough when we're being prescribed Lupron. We hope this episode can really help inform you of some of the potential risks that could come along with taking this medicine. Of course, we say potential risks because it does not mean that if you take Lupron, you will have all or any of these side effects. But it is a possibility. And so you should be aware of them when taking this medication so that you can make informed consent about your care. In the third episode of the series, we spoke in depth about the side effects of both Orlissa and Lupron. So definitely go back and listen to that episode if you're thinking of taking Lupron, because this episode picks up where that one left off. As we mentioned as we closed that episode, Lupron has been on the market for 30 years, and hundreds of thousands of people have taken it. Because of this, we actually do have insight and knowledge into the long-term side effects that can happen with Lupron. So that's what we're going to be talking about today. And we also think it will be fun and fascinating to explain how GnRH drugs work in the body. And as a reminder, Lupron is a GnRH agonist and Orlissa is a GnRH antagonist. So we are going to go into details about how those drugs actually work in our body. And we think that will help understand why Lupron may have the different side effects that it does. Finally, we want to remind you that Lupron only treats the symptoms of endometriosis. So Lupron is prescribed as symptom management, like for treating pain, but it does not treat the endometriosis itself. 
So if you want to learn more about its effectiveness at treating pain, then make sure you go back if you haven't and you listen to episode two of this series in which we talked about the effectiveness of Lupron. And we feel that for some of you, this might be a very hard episode to listen to because as we learned about a lot of the side effects and those that have experienced them, it was very difficult for us to come to terms with the pain that they've caused to some of the people that have taken them. So if you have taken Lupron and you were not aware of the side effects when you began the medication or you weren't informed of them, we understand that this may be a hard episode to listen to. We're also aware that many doctors prescribe Lupron without actually informing patients of the seriousness of the side effects. And this is especially frustrating because we have a right to know exactly what we're putting in our bodies and we trust our doctors to relay that information to us. But in many cases, they're not informed, so they can't inform us either. So we're here on the journey with you to understand these side effects. And if you have experienced these side effects, we're very sorry that you have had that happen to you. And if you're considering taking these medications, please understand that we're going to be reporting on some data and research here. So we also recommend that you look into this yourself as well. While some of the information in this episode may be scary, we're not trying to create fear. This is not fear-mongering. We're not trying to make you feel scared or worried. We're rather trying to inform you. So if you're thinking about taking these drugs or you're currently taking them, we want to give you as much information as we possibly can equip you with because knowledge is power. It's a common phrase, but I think it rings true here. If you have taken these medications and you're experiencing serious side effects, there's a couple options for you that we think are pretty helpful. The first one being actually reporting them to the FDA. The FDA does track these reports. It can help them see trends among people taking a medication. They do this for all medications, so it can be very helpful for future research and regulating medication. Additionally, you can seek out community. There are other people who have experienced side effects with Lupron. There are Facebook groups and websites for people who experience long-term side effects of Lupron, and we'll talk more about that later. And of course, you should always bring up serious side effects with your doctor who actually prescribed you the medication. And we just want you to know that with all of the information that we're going to give today, we are not shaming or judging anyone for using Lupron Sometimes in our community, we do hear shame about certain treatment options or certain decisions that people make, but we just want you to know that we're just here to give information and we do not have any judgments towards the decisions that you have made that are right for you and your body. And on that note, we want you to know that we are not advising you to take or to not take Lupron. We cannot advise you on that. That's your own personal choice to make with your doctor about your body. But just keep in mind, as we always talk about, that so many doctors are misinformed about endometriosis and about Lupron and the side effects and the efficacy. So it's really, really important when you work with your doctor to work with someone who is qualified and knowledgeable on endometriosis. And a really good resource for that is joining the Facebook group Nancy's Nook. Okay, well, let's jump in. 
So we want to highlight a couple of surveys that were done on people who took Lupron. So we've mentioned the Endometriosis Research Center and the surveys that they have done. They did surveys on patients who took Lupron. And in these surveys, over half of the participants, about 51%, stated that they experienced side effects that lasted longer than six months. And then 23% of the patients in the survey said that they had side effects that had lasted longer than five years from taking Lupron. There was another study done in 2018 by a completely different independent group. This study focused on people who had taken Lupron as teenagers, and they surveyed them with a questionnaire four or more years after they had stopped taking Lupron. And about 45% of those people reported that they had symptoms that they classified as irreversible that were due to them taking Lupron. It's so heartbreaking to see the amount of people who have taken these drugs experience severe and irreversible side effects. And of course, those are only people who have participated in a survey, but there are many other people out there that have reported dealing with similar side effects that are long-term or irreversible. It's even worse when you take into account dealing with something like endometriosis is now compounded with dealing with other side effects that can be devastating to your quality of life. In terms of Lupron, we've seen people in endosupport groups talking about some of the long-term side effects that they experience, which can include blurred vision, complete changes in their vision, hormonal issues, issues with speech, hearing, or vision, migraines, epileptic episodes, muscle weakness, insomnia, thyroid problems, joint pain, memory loss, gastrointestinal problems, strokes, mental health issues, bone loss, suicidal ideation, suicidal deaths, heart attacks. My jaw is just dropped open right now because that is a very serious and varied list of side effects that these people report to be from taking Lupron. And the fact that some continue having them after stopping Lupron is just awful. It is so devastating and heartbreaking to hear that so many people are having these different symptoms that are hurting their quality of life after stopping a medicine that they took because they wanted to improve their quality of life with the life that they were living with their endometriosis pain. And I think what we pointed out from the surveys, like as Brittany said, in the survey of the teenagers who stopped taking Lupron at least four years ago, 45% said they had symptoms that they thought were from Lupron and that were irreversible. In the other survey, 23% said that they had side effects for more than five years. These are high numbers of people. This is not, you know, 1% or the one-off person. These are high percentages of people who are having these long-term side effects. There is a website, and it's called Lupron Victims Hub, and it is run by a woman named Lynn Milliken. She was a registered nurse whose health was very severely and permanently affected by using Lupron. 
And she has put together a wealth of information that is exploring the misuse, the misinformation, the malpractice, the lawsuits, the fraud around Lupron. We really recommend that website, Lupron Victims Hub. If you have been hurt by Lupron, that is a really good place to get information. There are also Facebook support groups, such as Lupron Victims, Lupron Survivors, or Lupron Warriors. It's really nice that there is a community of people who know what you're going through, who you'll be able to talk to and get advice from, and just not feel so alone in what you're going through. I think it's also important to recognize the language that's used. We call ourselves endo-warriors, and people who survive cancer use the term cancer survivor. And here, the term Lupron survivor isn't being dramatic. It's literally an example of how devastating some of the side effects have been to people that they feel like they've survived taking this drug. And I think that's really important to notice. The FDA has a database, which is called AERS, or the Adverse Events Reporting System. And this is essentially where they house all reports they get of adverse effects or side effects that people report to them from taking a medication or drug. So in terms of adverse events reported in patients who use Lupron for endometriosis, there's actually over 10,000 reports of this in the FDA's database. And just to clarify, again, adverse offense means a complaint regarding side effects. I think it's also important to note that expert epidemiologists... (laughs) Epidemiologists essentially study and analyze patterns in health and disease in populations of people. Okay, so what did they say? They said that only about 5 to 10 percent of all adverse events, meaning complaints of side effects, are reported at all. Wow. So hold on. Let me do the math. If 10,000 complaints actually represents 5 to 10 percent of all actual complaints and 90 to 95 percent of complaints haven't been reported, okay, then we are looking at probably 100,000 to 200,000 adverse events complaints total for taking Lupron for endometriosis. And that is honestly a mind-boggling number. Another thing with Lupron is that there have been lawsuits against Lupron for the side effects that it has caused the people who have taken it. But according to the website Lupron Victims Hub, all of the cases that they're aware of were either dismissed or quietly settled out of court. So only one of the lawsuits made it to trial, and that was Klein versus Tap slash Abbott in 2011, and Tap slash Abbott were the original makers of Lupron. According to the website Lupron Victims Hub, evidence was suppressed from the jury in that trial, and the jury ruled in favor of the makers of Lupron. So our beloved Dr. Redwine, who we talked about in so many episodes, was actually an expert medical witness at that trial. If you are new to the podcast and you haven't heard us rave about Dr. Redwine, you will when you go back and listen to the rest of the episodes. You'll hear how obsessed we are with Dr. Redwine. To recap, he is a retired excision surgeon 
who was one of the pioneers of excision surgery, and he has devoted his whole career, more than 30 years, to researching about endometriosis. He was an expert medical witness at that trial. So can you just imagine it being so expert and amazing at something that they've made you an expert medical witness at trial? (laughs) Isn't that just, like, so cool? A lot of hard work, but... (laughs) But mostly, like, how incredible is it to be an expert at something so expert that you'd testify at a trial? That's really cool. So we mentioned this in the episode that we did about the efficacy of Lupron, but Dr. Redwine had access to the thousands of pages of raw data while he was the expert medical witness. And so he analyzed the raw data, and he actually put together his own 300-page report to the FDA called Lupralide, the D is silent. If you're wondering what that means, <laughs> that's because Lupralide is the medical name of for Lupron. And if you take the D out of Lupralide, it's Lupralie, as in a lie. As in not the truth, a lie. Get it? Because I didn't at first. <laughs> So in his report, he talked about what he discovered about how the published data did not match the raw data over and over again. This data was from TAP, which, as we said, were the original makers of Lupron. So right now, AbV is the maker of Lupron, but originally it was TAP. TAP was a joint venture between two companies. One of those companies was Abbott, which then split to become Abbott and AbV. So of the 300 pages, there's a couple things that we want to highlight in terms of the side effects. Dr. Redwine highlighted in his report that many of the serious side effects of Lupron were downplayed. Now, I remember when I got the patient brochure about Lupron from my doctor, which you can also go download from Lupron's website. And it says that the effects of menopause like hot flashes and not getting your period, are temporary and reversible. And it actually puts those two words, temporary and reversible, in bold. Keep in mind that Lupron suppresses sex hormones. Its goal is to medically induce menopause. Safety studies were done on whether hormones returned to baseline, so back to normal, after the patient stops taking Lupron. Since Lupron's patient brochure says the effects of menopause are temporary and reversible, that's what should happen in the people taking it. However, Dr. Redwine uncovered different information within the raw data. Oh, no. Like what? Okay, so one of the things that he found, which is pretty alarming is that one of the studies showed that the ovarian function in 63% of the people did not return to baseline a year after stopping Lupron. So this study was not very big. Mind you, it was only eight patients in this study. But this was the only study done on ovarian function a year after stopping Lupron. This study, which was done by TAP, Lupron's original makers, it measured estradiol levels. And estradiol is the strongest of the three types of estrogen in the body. So it's the major female sex hormone. So we said 63%, so that's more than half, 
12% of them were at menopausal levels of estrogen a year after stopping Lupron. That's super alarming. This data, which never came out, by the way, until Dr. Redwine's independent analysis. We love you. Thank you, Dr. Redwine. So they never published that study with the alarming information? Nope. But another study on the estradiol was. However, Dr. Redwine states that the published study was misleading. And one of the reasons was due to the time at which the estradiol levels were taken, which was a few days after the first menstruation after stopping Lupron. Whew. So basically when the patient stopped Lupron and then they got their period back, a few days after they got their period back, their estradiol levels were taken. Why would taking the levels at that time be misleading? So when they took the levels of estradiol, that's, it would naturally be lower than at another point in the cycle. So by taking the levels at that time, it can appear that the levels were better than they were. Additionally, Dr. Redwine stated that in the raw data, 39% didn't have estradiol levels returned to baseline at that time. And that percentage was not mentioned in the published data. Again? I can't believe this percentage, which is also alarming, wasn't published. So we have evidence from Lupron's raw data that shows that estradiol levels didn't return to baseline a few months or even a year after some of the people stopped Lupron. But unfortunately, there were no further studies done on this. And Dr. Redwine also stated that in the publication of the data, there was a graph showing estradiol levels, and that graph showed the levels as better, so as higher, than they actually were. So also the graph in itself was misleading. It's upsetting how much of the safety information on ovarian function was misleading. And that wasn't the only thing, right? Right. So let's go back to a minute on Dr. Redwine's report, Luprali. The D is silence. Dr. Redwine, when he analyzed the raw data, saw that the progesterone level one month after Lupron was actually manipulated in the published data. So progesterone levels are usually indicative of ovulating. So showing this data would have been important to show if the ovarian function actually returns to normal after Lupron. Dr. Redwine found that the graph published showed the progesterone as much higher than it was in the actual raw data. It's just so disappointing to hear about the manipulation of the graph to make it look like the progesterone levels were higher because Dr. Redwine reported that we also saw this same fabrication and misinformation of graph values in the study showing the estradiol levels of the patients post-Lupron. So what does all of that mean for us? Why do we need to know this? Why is it important to know this? So the first thing that's important to know is that the published data on ovarian function after stopping Lupron doesn't match the actual raw data. 
Because the raw data showed that not all patients had a return to baseline ovarian function a few months or even a year after stopping Lupron, this means that in some patients, Lupron may have a long-term effect on their ovarian function. Ovarian function is important for getting pregnant, for your fertility, or for regulating your hormonal and body systems. If Lupron affects our ovarian function long-term, we have a right to know that. We have a right to know that these functions in our body may be affected if we take this drug. But there weren't actually any further studies done on this. Hearing about how some people didn't have their ovarian function returned to baseline is so devastating to be dealing with on top of endometriosis because it could bring additional health problems or ramifications in terms of fertility. And having to deal with that on top of your debilitating disease is just devastating. Well, and it's so sad because if this was already shown in a small study, I mean, ethically, morally, the company should have done more research to find out if that study with the eight people showing that 63% didn't return to ovarian baseline levels, like they should have done more studies to see on a greater scale with a greater number of people taking Lupron to see if those results repeated themselves on a bigger scale. We shouldn't be finding out through a podcast, a great podcast, our podcast. We're trying to inform, but it shouldn't have to be learned from or us. Or like <laughs> learning on, you know, from Facebook, from, but from a doctor, like as knowledgeable and smart as Dr. David Redwine, but we, we should be able to be informed adequately of these side effects right when we look at the prospects of the drug information. Not finding it out years and years after the drug comes out, not finding it out through having to follow or be educated from people who have done this kind of research. That's unacceptable behavior from the drug companies to yeah. hide a study like that. It's lack, unacceptable. The lack of accessibility to this information is just astonishing. It's not only is it not accessible, it's also, like you said, hidden. So it purposefully tries to tell you that there is not a problem with this, which then when you experience that problem, which you have a you know, potentially 63% chance of experiencing, it's easily dismissed because the published data doesn't reflect that information. And of course, just one more thing that people who are dealing with endo can be dismissed about. And that's really frustrating. Well, what you just said about the data not being accessible leads me to a point that I was going to make later, but I'll make now. Is that Dr. Redwine, like we said, he had access to the raw data because he was the expert medical witness in a trial, right? I mean, Dr. David Redwine, he does a fantastic job. He has experience and knowledge of how to interpret this raw data. But let's say that we wanted another independent, non-biased party, like Dr. Redwine, to look at Lupron's raw data. Well, guess what? What? They can't. Why? Why can't I just go look at the raw data and ask a doctor to interpret it for me? <laughs> Why not? First of all, I don't know what doctor is going to have. I was going to find some excision specialists. I don't know. The, the patience and the knowledge that Dr. Redwine has, again, we love you. I feel like you're just as obsessed with Dr. Redwine as you are with Santa. If you get that, thanks for being an avid listener of our podcast. 
And if you don't, go back and find it. (laughs) (laughs) Ooh. So scavenger hunt. Treasure hunt. Treasure hunt. (laughs) When did Amy talk about Santa obsessively? (laughs) Hint, it's not near Christmas. (laughs) (laughs) Hint, actually it was. I know. (laughs) Try to off the trail. Come on. The reason why you or I or another person cannot look at the raw data is because it is under court seal. It is sealed by the court. That seems convenient. It is inaccessible. Mm-hmm. Well, TAP, which we said was the company, the joint venture company that used to make Lubram. So basically, they had the data, the raw data sealed, claiming it was for proprietary reasons. So proprietary reasons is like you want to keep your your secret formula safe. Exactly. Like, oh, we got to protect so no one will copy our formula. But Lupron's chemical structure, it's no secret. It's a GnRH agonist. It's not a secret what its chemical structure is. Perhaps the makers of Lupron were claiming proprietary reasons for something different, but many people speculate that sealing the data was actually a convenient way to make sure that the raw data couldn't be accessed. Because as we've mentioned, oftentimes the published data did not match the raw data. And oftentimes the published data showed Lupron in a much more favorable light than the actual studies showed. Analyzing the raw data, Dr. Redwine found that the risk percentage of bone mineral density loss was seriously downplayed in the data that was published by TAP. When he compared it to the actual raw data, the risk of bone mineral density loss was higher in the actual real, raw, unmanipulated data. That's really serious. No, Brittany, who cares? Don't you remember that AbbVie's survey showed that we really don't care much about the risk of fracture and breaking our bones if our endometriosis pain would only go down temporarily? Just kidding. By the way, that was sarcasm. Well, that was actually what their study showed, which we talked about in the episode on the side effects on Lupron and Orlissa. But while those were their conclusions, I don't think that's the truth for most of us. And that's awful. I mean, how, again, how are we supposed to make an educated, informed decision when we don't have all the information, especially about these things like permanent side effects? That's very, very serious. It's also just very serious to know that a company purposefully tried to hide that just so I would take their medication and could potentially have serious side effects the rest of my life. That just, for me, is the most disgusting moral thing that I could think of. In Dr. Redwine's massive 300-page report that took him four months that he sent to the FDA, he concluded that the risk of taking Lupron did not outweigh the benefits that could be received from it. Yeah, Dr. Redwine said that in some patients, the risk-benefit analysis is completely unfavorable for the use of Lupron. And that is just... Wow. I know. I'm going to double wow you, because at the end of his report, Dr. Redwine stated that the makers of Lupron took every opportunity 
to paint Lupron in a more favorable light than it actually was, both in terms of the efficacy, which we discussed in part two, and the side effects. He also recommended that the FDA consider removing Lupron from the market immediately. They ignored him clearly, but... (laughs) Wow. (laughs) Yeah, that's a pretty big thing to say. But it's valid when it comes from a doctor who knows what he's talking about and has done extensive research and saw actual raw data. That's a claim that he can back up with evidence. So my question is, the FDA got this massive 300-page investigative reporting Mm -hmm. by Dr. David Redwine. And so I ponder, what did the FDA do upon receiving this information, this recommendation? Well, they took about 365 days to figure out what they wanted to say. Okay. They needed time to read document, And I'm sure they get a lot of information all the time. So So after they read his epic 300-page document one year later, they responded. Wait, I'm pretty sure I already know because Lupron is still on the market. So (laughs) I'm going to take a gander here (laughs) and I'm going to say that. They did not pull it off the market. Correct. Oh, my gosh. I in fact, so smart. Well, we I really that. am Sherlock Holmes. <laughs> you mouse lock Holmes. <laughs> well, not only did they not pull it from the market, they also said that no changes needed to be made to the regulation of it, which is just astonishing to me. Wow. I mean, I, I just so I just it's just hard to believe that after getting that report and seeing the fraudulent conclusions and the misleading graphs. They didn't think that any regulatory changes were needed. Like, they didn't think that they needed to change the information put out there on the drug or that they needed to have Lupron do more studies. Or, like, I just don't, like, it just baffles me that they just, they didn't make any kind of changes or recommendations upon receiving his report. Apart from everything that we just talked about and how awful and disappointing and just deceptive and just morally wrong all of that is i think you know what's really like how that affects us is that because this information did not come out when lupron was brought to market doctors were not informed of all of these risks doctors were informed of this misleading misinformation and then Because they didn't have the proper information and they didn't know the proper risks, they were not able to properly inform the patients. They were not able to properly inform us. And so they're recommending a drug that supposedly can reduce endometriotic lesions, that supposedly, you know, the side effects aren't as serious, supposedly, as they actually are. They didn't have all the information. So then we didn't have all the information. It's so unfortunate that many of the people who took Lupron and had serious side effects and have gone to the FDA or begun lawsuits about Lupron had to go through that experience because they didn't have sufficient information, because information was hidden. I think it's safe to say that when we have more information, we make a more informed choice. And it's sad that some of these people who took Lupron may have made a different choice were they given data that wasn't fraudulent when making their decision. And I'm sure there are also doctors who wouldn't recommend this medication 
if they were given the actual real data when it comes to the risks not outweighing the benefits. I know we made a lot of jokes about how much we love Dr. Redwine. You're probably like, oh my God, those girls are totally obsessed with Dr. Redwine. And I am a little bit obsessed. I'm not going to lie. But I'm just obsessed with his capability to understand and do this kind of research and share it with the endo community and advocate for us and advocate for proper treatment. Like ultimately what it comes down to is I'm just so grateful that we have people in our community like Dr. Redwine and there are many others who advocate for the proper and correct information of endometriosis. I mean, can you imagine, like, thank goodness this information is coming to light. Thank goodness more people are talking about this information. Thank goodness this information is getting shared on social media, on different platforms where people all over the world can actually begin to learn about the risks, the real risks of Lupron and be able to make a more informed choice about their treatment. So now we want to talk about another report on Lupron. Another report? So during that same trial that Dr. Redwine was a medical witness to, there was a report done by a former FDA medical officer. And he was involved with the initial 1985 approval of Lupron for the treatment of prostate cancer. And he's actually also a retired professor of pharmacology. So he knows what he's talking about. Oh, yeah. So this former FDA medical officer, whose name is Dr. John Guariguian, he wrote a report entitled Lupron and the Plaintiff's Health Problems, a thematic report. In this report, Dr. G reported that Lupron affects the autonomic nervous system. Essentially, Lupron is a synthetic version of our natural GnRH. And the synthetic version of GnRH is actually much stronger than our natural GnRH. I think this is a really good time to pause for a minute and explain how Lupron or Lissa and GnRH drugs work in the body. And not only is the science behind what they do to our body fascinating, it's very fascinating, but it can also help us to understand why they have side effects on our body, what those side effects are a result of, and we'll talk about that right after. Many people are saying that Orlissa is just an oral form of Lupron, but Orlissa is not Lupron in a pill. Orlissa and Lupron are both GnRH drugs, so they both work on the same pathways in the body, which are the GnRH pathways. They both put you into medical menopause, but they don't work exactly the same way. So I consulted with Kate, who runs the Instagram and the Facebook page Endogirls blog. Kate has endometriosis herself, and she's also a patient advocate, and she does heavy research into the science behind treatment options. And she also has a Bachelor's of Science in Biochemistry, so she is an incredibly smart woman who can really understand science. She has very credible, trustworthy information. I highly recommend following her at Endogirls blog so that you can stay up to date, too, on the information that she posts. Okay, so Lupron is what is called a GnRH agonist. And Orlissa is a GnRH antagonist. I feel like 
I might be the Orlissa and you might be the Lupron. Because I'm antagonizing and you're agonizing. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just kidding. <laughs> Brittany's so funny. See, I was antagonizing you. <laughs> yeah, you're right. You are kind of in, you're kind of always antagonizing me. I am. Me. I think a really good place to start is first explaining what GnRH means. Well, GnRH is a hormone in the body that's released by your hypothalamus, which is in your brain. Well, that's fancy, but what does it do? Well, Brittany, GnRH, the hormone, is released in pulses. Pulse. Pulse. I hate the word pulse. Pulse. A lot of people hate the word moist. I don't mind it. I hate the word pulse. Pulse. It's repulsive. Okay, so it's released in pulses. That's really important to remember that it's released in pulses. Do you have to keep saying it? Pulse. I do so that you can really get it in your (laughs) head. I really get it. (laughs) Get in your head that it's released in pulses. Okay, I got it. All right. Then what it does, the hormone binds to receptors in the pituitary gland, which is also in your brain. Okay, but then what happens? When the GnRH is bound to the receptors in the pituitary gland, it sends signals. Beacons. It sends signals, luteinizing hormone and FSH, to the ovaries. Okay, then what do the ovaries do? And then the ovaries get the signal. More beacons. To make estrogen. Oh. So TLDR. GnRH pulses, pulses into the pituitary gland. Yes. And the pituitary gland tells the ovaries. Yes. And the ovaries are like, let's make estrogen. Yes. So GnRH makes our estrogen. Through that process, yes. Yes. Whew. Okay. I feel like I'm scienced out. Okay. GnRH, the hormone, the natural one that's in your body, the one that's made by your hypothalamus, the one that's made in your body. Whew is only in the bloodstream for a few minutes. Wow. Very important. Because the body degrades it very quickly. It's like, hello, GnRH, bye-bye, you're done. Peace out. It's like the life cycle of a butterfly. They're here so short, they're so beautiful, and then they're dead. A butterfly has a life cycle of two weeks. GnRH has a life cycle of two minutes. Okay, what is it, like a a few minutes. So... (laughs) But it's, I'm just saying Clearly it's sad. Clearly you weren't listening, Brittany. <laughs> Sorry. I just think about butterflies. They're so beautiful. They are. But so it's people... nothing like a butterfly. Okay. Okay. It's estrogen. I got it. So here's what Lupron does. Lupron is an agonist. Like me. Agonizing. So Lupron goes in and it mimics the GnRH hormone in your body. To the body, it looks like the real natural GnRH hormone. But it's not. Dun, dun, dun. It's a synthetic analog. So it's like a knockoff Gucci bag. Like, it looks like Gucci. It's got the same colors as Gucci. It's got the logo of Gucci, but it's not Gucci. I've never owned Gucci, but I would assume there's a marked difference. (laughs) Exactly. Lubron is like a knockoff of GnRH. But if you're sold it quickly on the sidewalk in the evening when it's dark, you might not realize. So Lupron goes ahead and it binds to the receptor in the pituitary gland, which is where the GnRH drug normally binds. So it tricks the gland. Oh, sneaky. 
very sneaky. So the gland is like, oh my God, hello, Janner H, bind here, like you always do, but it's not really Janner H. It's Lubron. It's like those movies where there's an evil twin and they don't know that the twin is evil and they're like, yeah, come into my home, be my friend. And then they kill them because they're an evil twin, but they didn't know. Oh my God. The doppelganger. Woo! Yes. <laughs> Lubron is like the Janner H impersonator. Pop quiz, Brittany. Yeah. Do you remember that I said that Lupron is released in? You know I remember pulses. Uh-huh. <laughs> and it's a grades shorter than the lifetime of a butterfly. Yeah, a couple minutes. I got it. Yeah, a couple minutes. Okay. <laughs> so Lupron is not released in pulses. Ooh. It is steady, steady, steady. And it does not degrade quickly in the bloodstream. So there's more of it, and it lasts a heck of a lot longer. Yes. So what does it do? It overstimulates the pituitary gland. Oh. It's like, come on. My poor gland. Come on. Let it out. That just means I'm producing so much estrogen, I can't even contain it. Exactly. It's going to burst out of me like butterflies. Oh, God. (laughs) What is the obsession with butterflies? (laughs) I don't know. I'm sorry. Okay. (laughs) At least it's not Santa. (gasps) Side eye. (laughs) Don't insult me. So. The pituitary gland goes and it makes its LH and FSH, which tells the ovaries to make hormones, especially estrogen. And that's why many people who go on Lupron are told that they'll probably have a surge in their symptoms over the first one to two weeks because, 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 <laughs> because of the one <laughs> We're off to see the doctor, the wonderful doctor of Lupron. <laughs> because there's a surge in estrogen because the gland gets overstimulated. Overstimulation does not sound good. Why would you want your gland to be overstimulated? That does not sound like it's a good thing. I'm getting a little overstimulated. What's happening with my pituitary gland? Okay, whoa. I'm sorry. Calm it down. Okay. But you're right, Brittany. I'm overwhelmed. The body is like, oh, my God, why do I have so much estrogen? And the gland was so overstimulated that it's like, oh, my God, I am so exhausted now. I've never worked this hard in my life. So then it gets smart and it internalizes the GnRH receptor so that it cannot get more GnRH, so that it cannot send more signals to the ovaries, so that it cannot make more estrogen. That doesn't sound good. First, that's incredible how amazing and intelligent our bodies are, that the pituitary gland was like, whoa, overload, let's adjust and adapt so that we're not being overloaded. But also, too, that doesn't sound like it's a good thing in this case. Well, think about it. If the receptor is hiding, okay, think about the receptor as a door. When the door is hidden, no one can get in the room. Secret door. So when the receptor is hiding, the GnRH can't get in. And without GnRH, we don't have the LH. Exactly, because we don't have the signals of the LH and the FSH to the ovaries. So then we don't have the estrogen. Yes. And that's why we go into medical menopause. Because the pituitary gets all exhausted. It gets chronic fatigue, just like (laughs) we have with endometriosis. It's just trying to relate to us. (laughs) But the medical menopause state is a very unnatural state for the body to be in. What's scary about this is that, well, one, 
the body uses estrogen all over the body in many organs. So without estrogen, your cholesterol can be affected. Your bone health can be affected. Your brain can be affected. And then because the pituitary gland hides the receptor, it takes time for the receptor to come back out. And what we've seen is that some people who go on Lupron have had permanent side effects in regards to their hormones. They haven't come out of menopause or their hormones have not returned to baseline levels a year later. The body is not always just snapping back out of it once we go off of Lupron. So we've talked about our agonist. We understand how you work. But what about me? How does I work? How does the antagonist work? How does Orlissa work? So Orlissa works differently. Like we said, it's not Lupron in a pill form. What Orlissa does is that it blocks the receptor so that the natural GnRH hormone cannot bind to the receptor. Okay, so Lupron floods the system with synthetic GnRH. The impersonator. The doppelganger. Which then overstimulates the poor working hard pituitary gland, causing it to go into hiding. I don't blame it. It's overwhelming. I'm so tired. But Orlissa actually blocks the receptors in the pituitary gland from receiving the natural GnRH. Yeah, it's like with Orlissa, you took a big boulder... And you put it in front of the door to the room so no one can open the door so the GnRH cannot get inside. Oh, that's mean. Don't put up walls, tear them down. Must have been a heavy boulder. Since GnRH cannot activate your receptors, since they can't go through that door, your pituitary gland doesn't get that signal, so then it cannot make its own signal to the ovary. And since the ovary didn't get its signal then it can't produce the estrogen. Aww. It's like no one passed the baton in the relay race. The first person dropped it. No, the and the lost first person it. ran into a wall. <laughs> <laughs> the first person dropped out of the race. Yes. But took the baton with them. Oh, that's stealing. And no one <laughs> That is, isn't it? And no one else could take the baton after that. Since we talked about Depo Provera in the first episode of this series, we just quickly wanted to point out how it works because it also works on the same GnRH pathways. Just keep in mind, it is not a GnRH drug. And remember that Depo-Provera is the brand name for Depo-Medroxyprogesterone acetate, which is the drug name. Basically, the way it works is that the progesterone decreases the pulse frequency. So remember we said that the GnRH hormone is released in pulses. So it decreases the rate at which the GnRH pulses happen. So essentially, when taking Depo-Provera, your body's still utilizing natural GnRH, but the Depo slows down the pulses or the rate at which GnRH is released into the body. And we just want to point out that Orlissa and Depo-Provera, unlike Lupron, do not completely suppress estrogen. Okay, Brittany, now you know how the drugs work in the body, which was fascinating. Very scientific. Might I say, but it's very interesting. I feel very intelligent at this moment for having learned that. Okay, so GnRH works on the pituitary gonadal system. 
The pituitary gland is your master gland, and it affects every physiological process in the body. Dr. G reported that in 1999, which was 10 years after Lupron had been on the market, the FDA did a review of complaints reported to them at that time, and they found that the different adverse events, so the different side effects of Lupron, could be classified under various categories. So some of the categories of these side effects were, for example, pain and fibromyalgia. Another is decrease in quality of life. Another was musculoskeletal and articular disorders. So that's just basically like muscle, bones, and joints. Additional categories were memory disorders. And then we had the mental health disorders, which would be anxiety, depression, mood disorders. Also, nervousness, irritability, and sleeplessness. And then we had the mania, paranoia, and other psychotic disorders. And one of the final categories was pituitary adenomas and apoplexy. Essentially, what's important to take away from that is how varied and drastic the categories are. Everything from musculoskeletal effects to mood disorder effects. That's such a wide range because Lupron affects the full physiology of the body. Two things we really want to highlight from this report which you can actually find online yourself if you go to lupronvictimshub.com, or you can always message us and we'll send you a link to it as well. But the two things we really want to highlight, which we will read word for word in the doctor's own language, is one about, about how much research was done by TAP on Lupron before it hit the market. And remember, TAP is the original maker of Lupron. Quote, After years of use of Lupron in a great number of patients, the evidence is clear that TAP didn't study Lupron adequately before marketing. After its introduction into the marketplace, TAP did not perform enough long-term studies to detect potential long-term and irreversible side effects of Lupron, which has been shown, through independent observations and studies, to be able to cause irreversible side effects and permanently severely disabling health problems, end quote. Wow, that is so heavy and horrible. Hearing that report by the former FDA medical officer who was involved in the initial approval of Lupron in 1985, it's just so shocking and disheartening to hear that proper research was not done on the long-term side effects of this drug before it came to market, and that it has been shown to cause permanent, severely disabling health problems. And if you're listening and you are one of the people who has experienced such an awful side effect of using Lupron, then our heart goes out to you. And we acknowledge how difficult that must be on top of having endometriosis. We cannot fathom what that must feel like. But we do know that you must be so incredibly strong to be able to deal with that. The last thing that we really want to highlight about Dr. G's report on Lupron has to do with the lack of information that TAP gave 
to doctors and their patients to be able to make an informed decision on the treatment that they're putting into their body. To quote directly from the report, it says, quote, TAP did not adequately warn the prescribing physician and their patients about all the risks, dangers, long-term, and irreversible side effects associated with the use of Lupron due to the misleading, all-embracing, extremely broad, and vague and equivocal terms in the written Lupron warnings. TAP failed to put warnings in the Lupron labeling about known adverse events, which were reported to the FDA's Adverse Events Reporting System, and which were known through medical literature and the endometriosis community. End quote. Essentially, what Dr. G here is saying here, or rather lambasting with very eloquent and highly intelligent person speak, is that TAP didn't accurately convey the risks and adverse events that could happen to a patient taking this medication to either the patient nor the prescribing doctors. And that's adverse events, that's side effects that were already known about. Honestly, as I read that out loud, my heart leapt in my throat because it is just so horrible and morally corrupt and greedy to think that we were not adequately informed of the risks, the serious, serious risks, the full body risks of a medicine that we're going to put in our body. And we're still not being adequately informed. Like, this report came out in 2011. In the current day that we're recording this, it is 2020. It has been over nine years. There are people like Lynn from Lupron Victims Hub and others who have been fighting, fighting tirelessly to inform the public about the potential dangers of taking Lupron. Dr. G's report is so heart-wrenching, well-written, well-researched. I mean, you have someone here who he knows what he's talking about, just like Dr. Redwine, who knows what he's talking about. You have these experts in the field. I mean, Dr. G was a former FDA medical officer, and he's a retired professor of pharmacology. Like, he knows drugs. When you have these experts in the field, like Dr. Redwine, like Dr. G, making these well-substantiated, well-researched statements about the harm that Lupron can cause, and you have the evidence of the surveys and the reports of adverse events to the FDA, and the anecdotal information of thousands and thousands of people who call themselves survivors and victims of this drug. It just blows my mind that this drug is still being offered so readily and easily. It is being prescribed for endometriosis. It is being prescribed as a treatment for endometriosis, which it's not. It does not treat endometriosis. And we talked about that in part 2B of the series. Many doctors are not adequately informing their patients of the risks, either because they're not adequately informed of the risks or because they're not taking the time to talk about the risks to the patients. Or in the case that I explained about my experience with Depo-Provera, 
They're flat out telling patients that there are no risks or they don't have to worry about the risks. The practices that have gone on by TAP around Lupron, the practices that go on every day by big pharma around various drugs, it absolutely sickens me. Ooh, I should ask them, can you make a drug that'll help me with how sick I feel from all of the misinformation and misleading? I don't think they're going to like that. (laughs) (laughs) A lot of us feel really sick by what is happening, so they can make a lot of money off of us, right? Amy and I also want to express that we're not anti-medicine, even though a lot of the practices infuriate us surrounding medicine. But we do believe that medicine has a very integral place and it's very important. And we both use it when we need it. But what makes us so heartbroken and feel so passionate is that a lot of medication is being prescribed without the sharing of information on the risks. And before we use any medication, we should know everything that's surrounding that, surrounding what's going into our bodies. And we want to use it because the benefits are going to outweigh the potential risks. If you decide not to use a medication like Lupron or Alyssa or any other medication, that's your decision to make. You don't have to take something even if a doctor pressures you to take it. I remember after Amy told her doctor she wasn't going to take Lupron, she told me the doctor actually said to her that she should be open to trying more things. And I thought that was so shocking to me because trying a new medication isn't without risks. And saying that belittles the experience that she could have had taking something like Lupron. It's not like being like, oh, we're in a buffet. Like, you should try that dish over there. You should try new things. Have an open mind. You shouldn't have just an open mind when it comes to medication. You should have a critical mind about everything you put into your body. And I think it can be really hard for some of us to say no, especially to an authority figure like a doctor. So if you decide to say no to something, that is your right to say no. It is your body and only you decide what you can do with it and what goes into it. So allow yourself the space to say no and feel confident in your decision because you're making your decision based on information and education. And ultimately, don't feel guilt if you didn't know any of these things before you listened to the episode because how would you know? This is some really heavy information that took hours and hours of research on our part. As I said, we've been taught to trust in the authority of doctors and we've been taught to trust that they know everything about what they're telling to us. And there are some really phenomenal doctors out there, but there are also many doctors that aren't communicating information with us adequately. We're not medical experts, nor can we help tell you what is best for your treatment, but we hope that this information has helped you and given you a tool that you can use when deciding the treatment plan that's right for you. By the way, we also want to point out that in Dr. G's report, he states that when he extrapolated the reported adverse events, so remember those are the side effects, when he pulled out the reported adverse events reported to the FDA to estimate the actual adverse effects, so the actual number of side effects, He came to the conclusion that Lupron appears to be more toxic than any other GnRH analog. Based on the data, he said that it appears 
that Lupron is about twice as toxic as Solidex. And Solidex is another GnRH agonist. Wow, that's honestly astonishing. But if that's what the data appears to report, then we should take that conclusion very seriously if we're thinking about taking this medication. What we reported on today in this episode was all specific to Lupron, and that's why we made this into this own episode about the potential risks of Lupron. So with all of that said, this concludes our series on Lupron and Orlissa. We really hope that you enjoyed these series, or perhaps if you did not enjoy them, because we can see how they're really not that enjoyable <laughs> with all that heavy, really sciencey, heavy science. I think this is the episode in which we've joked the absolute least in all of our history. <laughs> yeah, but it's also a very serious topic. We hope at least these episodes were highly informative to you. We want to thank you so much for being on this journey with us to learn about these different treatment options that are so commonly prescribed for endometriosis. If you haven't already, you can follow us at In 16 Years of Endo, and you can also reach out to us there if you have any questions about what we've talked about in these episodes or want us to pass you the links for any of the sources. And we're also on the website in16years.com, where you can connect with us via email. If you'd like to support us, you can rate our podcast in your podcast app, reach out to us via email or Instagram, or buy us a coffee via the support page on our website. Thank you so much for listening, and we will talk to you next time. Bye.